0: You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love all things bookish. If you are looking for book recommendations, please check out the two columns that I write for a wonderful Houston publication, The Buzz Magazines. My weekly column is entitled Page Turners, and I highlight various books and authors and other fun book topics. For my monthly column, called Buzz Reads, I choose my top five picks for each month. You can also email me at cindyhburnett at att.net for personalized book recommendations. I get those requests all the time, and I love replying to them. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Amy Popel. Amy is the author of the novels Small Admissions and Limelight, and her latest musical chairs. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Rumpus, Literary Hub, Working Mother, and The Belladonna. She and her husband have three sons and split their time between New York City Germany and the wilds of Connecticut. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, Amy. I'm so glad you're here today joining me to talk about musical chairs. How are you today?
1: I'm well. Thank you. Thanks so so much for having me.
0: I always enjoy talking with you and loved both of your prior books, Limelight and Small Admissions, and equally loved musical chairs. In fact, it's one of my picks for my Buzz Top Five picks for August because I loved it so much. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. So why don't we start out by you talking a little bit about Musical Chairs. Tell us about it.
1: Okay. So Musical Chairs, as you said, it's my third book. Musical Chairs has a very large cast of characters, which was fun and a challenge when it comes to doing the actual writing, but it's a big family story. Bridget and Will are the two main characters. They are long time old best friends. They've known each other since they were freshmen at Juilliard and they've stayed in touch all of these years because they're not only very good friends, but they work together. Bridget has one plan in mind for the summer. She thinks she's going to be meeting her boyfriend at her rather dilapidated summer house when he dumps her over email. And then just the whole plans for the summer completely fall apart. Her adult children end up moving back home unexpectedly. And her friend Will comes up to visit her and sort of ends up falling in love with a local. And then her father announces that he's getting married at 90 years old. And it's mayhem.
0: I was thinking best laid plans when I was reading it in terms of she has her entire summer planned out because I'm such a planner that she has her entire summer planned out and then not a single thing goes like she expects it to.
1: Not a single thing. And she then has to sort of think to herself as we've all done recently, well, if things aren't going to go the way I expected them to do, what now? What do I do now? And she has to really start fresh and plan her summer all over again, which is a challenge because her work is on hold. I wrote all of this way pre-corona virus, but it is interesting how a lot of what happens to Bridget has happened to me recently. So I think while the book is definitely fun and a nice escape from what we're all living through at the moment, I do think there are also some very funny parallels to what Bridget goes through in the book and what my life has been like lately.
0: Well, I thought that too as I was reading it because I was reading it in the middle of the pandemic and I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. It, I knew you had written it ahead of time because I had hosted you with Susie for Limelight and so we talked some about the book then and I was first very happy to see it you know, make its way out there and read it, enjoyed it, but also just thinking, oh, that's interesting that almost not a premonition, but it just ended up kind of being very relevant to what we're going through.
1: Yes, I mean, there is something about a family being, not trapped together exactly, <laughs> but, but sort of finding themselves all under one roof again. It's something that is the norm when your children are small, but when they get to be older, you sort of think you've hit a certain empty nest phase of your life, and that your um, relationship with your kids is gonna be a little bit less intense as when they were high schoolers. <laughs> So to return to that is just, for me, it's great comedically because there's just a lot of room in there for humor of having adult kids living at home. But it's also something that a lot of people are going through either because of the virus or just anyway, because a lot of kids are having a slightly harder time getting off the ground these days.
0: Well, that's true too. Even if there hadn't been the coronavirus, I do think you're right. A lot of kids are grown and are having to move back home. But I think it is particularly relevant for all of us who had at least a child or two out of the house that are suddenly back in the house and you're finding yourself in a totally different situation than you expected.
1: Yes, and they find themselves regressing and you find yourself wondering, do I be bossy? Do I be a mom? Do I tell a 26-year-old to put his cereal bowl in the sink or,
0: or clean she- their room <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah i mean how much are we supposed to parent these kids even if they're in college but they're back for an extended period do you make new house rules like just negotiating that i think is has been interesting for a lot of us and i and i just think if you can if you're able to see the humor in it, there's a lot of humor in it. And that's what I tend to do in all of my books is take any situation that's the kind of thing that might happen to all of us and find the humor in it.
0: Well, and that's one of the things I like so much about your books. And I'm always surprised when I read one because I feel like that is the perfect book. There's a lot of depth to it, but it's also funny. You bring out a lot of human The human side to people, but a lot of things that are happening to all of us. And I wish that there were a lot more books like this. And I feel like the market has gotten so specific, like you've got to have a thriller that's a domestic thriller, or you've got to have this, that they, too much classification. And I think we need more books like yours. So I'm always happy when your book comes out because I think they're so important for fiction and just for people to read. It's a great insight into life.
1: Well that certainly makes my day. <laughs> this is the thing I like to hear more than anything. It's really the only thing I can write. I don't I I love reading thrillers, I couldn't write a thriller. I love reading historical fiction. I could not write historical fiction. But I can write families and friends and dysfunctional people and just situations that are things that a lot of us have experienced and just seen the humor in it, while also recognizing that the relationships between all of us, like those relationships matter. So it doesn't trivialize. I think that for a book like this to work, you have to focus a lot on character because if the reader doesn't care about the people, you've kind of lost your audience right there. So part of it is just getting to know the people, just really the work for a person writing historical fiction is all of that research that they have to do, which would completely overwhelm me. For me, the work that I have to do is I have to get to know these people as well as I know my own family. Like I have to really figure out almost everything about them, even if it doesn't end up in the book. Because if I don't understand who they are, why they behave the way they behave, what happened in their past to make them the way that they are, then the whole thing can fall apart. So that's that's sort of where the work for this kind of fiction comes in. Well, and that was
0: going to be my next question. How did you come up with the subject matter for this book? I mean, how did you create these people? Where did the idea for them come from?
1: Well, I have to say that probably the one of the main things that happened that made me want to write this book is that my kids ended up really musical and I'm not. And I have spent so much of the last 25 years, well, 26 years, raising my kids, carting them from one music lesson. My kids are not sports kids. They don't, I don't do the, I don't do the lacrosse team stuff. The ice hockey mom stuff. I, I, I'm a music mom. So I have spent so much of my time sitting outside of rehearsal rooms, um, watching my kids prepare for auditions. Two of my kids actually went to music schools. One went to Berkeley College of Music. My youngest is studying musicology at NYU right now he went to an arts boarding school. So I've spent so much time watching and admiring very musical people, having none of that talent myself. So I started thinking about chamber groups when my youngest son was put in one because I just was looking for something. You, know, I, I'm always looking for sort of an interesting dynamic. And what intrigued me was that to be in a in a trio, like I have, this is a classical piano trio in my book. You have to really have good chemistry. I think it would be very hard and maybe that would be a different book to write, but if you all hated each other, like I, it just, I don't see how that would work. And in the same way with my last book, when I was writing about limelight, the, you know, the notion of an ensemble cast in a Broadway show was so interesting to me. What happens if you have one person who's not like the others, who doesn't behave with the right sort of reverence for theater and doing the job the way it's supposed to be done. So with this, I thought different, ca- different characters and different attitudes about work and about money and about um, the purpose of what they're doing. So it, originally it was a quartet. I ended up changing it to a trio because trios are just more interesting So I made that change. So that was one of the things is that I decided to ground these characters in the world of classical music. The other thing that just was sort of on my mind because of the age that I am probably, but I just remembered when Harry met Sally and I remember Harry saying, men and women can't be friends because the sex always gets in the way. (laughs) And I started, you know, as I was writing this book and I was thinking about doing this very wonderful male-female friendship, I immediately started thinking, but wait, does the sex have to get in the way? And I won't tell you what happens. I won't tell your <laughs> listeners what happens between, you know, in terms of the relationship between these two people. But I was sort of exploring that question. Do they have to fall in love at the end? Should they not fall in love at the end? At what point do you cross a line in a friendship where now, you know, that's behind you? We're never going to revisit that, or maybe we'll never visit it to begin with. So male-female friendship, that was another thing that I just really wanted to sort of try to tackle. And the last thing, of course, is just being an older mom with older kids and having them under the same roof.
0: Well, All of those are very interesting topics, and I definitely agree with you. I think a trio versus a quartet, just because three always seems to odd number and all of that. But I also think, and that's interesting, the comparison to Limelight, because I hadn't really thought about it. Limelight remains one of my very favorite books. I recommend it all the time to people. But that kind of diva is the wrong thing because it's a a male person um, in Limelight. But that idea that you know this kind of I don't know, diva type person um, comes in and kind of expects the same special treatment. And I thought it was a little bit of an interesting dynamic with that a bit in musical chairs at times when they were trying to find the third person and yes. how that was going to be. And that that's an issue with musicians and actors and I guess any anybody famous.
1: Yes. And I, I, I agree. And the trio thing worked perfectly for the purposes of the book. To switch that was a really good move they're always trying to fill that empty third chair. And that just has sort of become Bridget and Will's job. Every few years they lose their violinist and they have to replace him. And having their original violinist, who in my mind, his name is Gavin in the book, but in my mind, always it was Jude Law. I just (laughs) picked Jude Law. Because he's got a little bit of a boyish thing going on and I just could see him playing that character so well. But to have that one person who is insecure and his insecurity gets masked by a really sort of pompous, yucky demeanor, I just always find that interesting when people are given a, like in this, in the case of Gavin, he's very good. He's been told his whole life he's very good, child prodigy, too young to even be in college, but there he is at Juilliard. and. Everyone thinks he's just a kid and he's become sort of insufferable and he becomes, he's obnoxious. And it's not because he's a bad person. I mean, I don't tend to write, I mean, even in Limelight, I don't think Carter was a bad person. Not at all. Um, I like to write books where, uh, for the most part, the underlying character of the characters is they're good people no one's evil. I don't, I don't tend to do that. I don't think I would do that well. And I don't um, people really like-, like
0: that often. I mean, I think it's nice to just have regular people know. I didn't think Carter was evil at all. I actually felt sorry for him. Yes. I think he just sort of been left on his own and didn't have anybody who was treating him like a regular person. They just were friends with him because of who he was.
1: Yeah. And there's behavior versus who you are. And My characters behave badly a lot of times. My (laughs) characters make big mistakes and they don't always do the right thing, but they're driven by something that is a good thing. They're never driven by really having it out for someone. I mean, yeah, even in small admissions, some of my worst parents, (laughs) even they were trying to do the right thing for their kids, you know, right.
0: well, and I mean, you see those people. I see those people. I mean, I think, you know, that, that's, I think why that book resonates well with so many people is that they're like, wait a minute, I see those people all the time in my regular life. Well, but again, even, I
1: agree. And even I've been that person. Yeah, exactly. Like that, when yes. you realize that's the kind of mistake that I've made. I've had, I remember somebody said to me once that it, it was hard for them that the main character in Small Admissions struggled so much after a breakup. And I was like, I've been there. Like I've fallen apart before. I'm just, I don't know. Most of the people I know have flaws and make bad decisions, but they're still good people. There's still people that you love who are in your big friendship circle or in your family or whatever. And we don't discount them in real life. So I don't think we should discount them on the page either.
0: Oh, I agree completely. I mean, I can think back on times where I made choices that I now think, why did I do that? So certainly, I mean, nobody's perfect. And I think that's the beauty of your books is understanding that and realizing everyone makes mistakes. And yes, no one's a psychopath, thankfully, right. but <laughs> they are making maybe a poor choice here or because they're just done with a breakup or they've lost their job or I mean, is, whatever it is, I just think that's human nature. And it's great to see that portrayed in that way. Yeah. And I enjoyed just learning a little bit more about the trio and the way they interacted and also the music they chose and all of that. Tell me a little bit about how you researched and and wrote that portion of your book.
1: So I'm so fortunate because I have a live-in music tutor (laughs) in the form of my 20-year-old. I mean, he's just fantastic. We just wrote a list. I Sorry that I can't... I think it's coming out on Frolic, I'm pretty sure, And I had to get him to write it with me because I did not grow up with a classical music education. I was not taught an instrument. I can't read music. I can barely carry a tune. And the worst part about me is that I don't even have particularly good taste in music and I don't (laughs) have an actual ear for it. So if you play something for me, I'll appreciate. I love going to the symphony. I love to go to the symphony. But if you say to me yesterday, hum for me what we heard last night, I can't do it.
0: Oh, I couldn't. I can't do, that
1: do it. I don't have a brain that can retain that. I, I and I think it's something to do with at what age you're exposed to things. And my I don't have, I don't seem to have the architecture in my brain to memorize and be able to replay a piece of music that I've only heard like once or twice, for example. It's different with pop music, things that we listen yeah. to on the radio right. all the time. So when it came so with this piece that I just wrote with my son. We came up with five pieces of music to listen to in certain situations. So what is a good thing to listen to when you're relaxing? What is a good thing to listen to in the background when you're working? I'll send you the link when it comes out. Not only did I need a lot of help to write that (laughs) that by myself, but now if you ask me, so what did you pick? I can't tell you. I don't, I can't tell you. It just, I don't know what's wrong with me because I can retain lots of books that I've read. I can retain, I can memorize like that, my whole joke with Limelight that Carter couldn't memorize his lines <laughs> in a play like that I can do. But for whatever reason, I have really, I struggle with that. So what I did was every time I needed a piece, I needed something on the radio. I needed them to choose a piece that they're going to play together. I would sit down with my son and he would give me choices and he would say, this would, this would be a good one And then he'd say, you know, but I'm not sure because it's a little too, oh, so she has to audition. Bridget has to audition toward the end of the book. I won't say under what circumstances. And I had the list of audition pieces. And my son was like, those are perfect, but he'd given me a list. And he's like, but two of the ones that you picked, they're too similar. She wouldn't go in, like, I should have grouped those separately where you picked one of those two because you need contrasting pieces and they're not enough of a contrast.
0: Who knew? Not me. <laughs> so, yeah, I would never know that. I mean, like I said, you know, I might hear a piece, like I like all the Bach cello pieces or Mozart's, you know, certain things the, of all these four seasons. But after that, my knowledge pretty much ends. I mean, I'll hear something and say, I really like it, but I would not know any of what you're describing either.
1: So Luke and I are going to make a Spotify list with all the pieces that are listed in the book. Because I have to tell you, they were not picked at random. Like They were very, very intentionally chosen. They're all beautiful. If you're an appreciator of classical music and, and actually have an education in it, you will love these pieces. If you are more like we are, you'll love these pieces. I mean, they're all really, really beautiful. And I I think it'll be fun to have a Spotify list that can kind of go along with the book so that if you're curious to know what some of these pieces sound like, you can listen to them. You can always hop on YouTube, enter any of the names of any of the pieces in the YouTube window and watch an actual orchestra do it. In fact, there's one piece in the book that's sort of about in the middle of the book. It's a Mendelssohn piano trio piece that is listed. Don't ask me which one it is because I don't remember. (laughs) It's beautiful. I can't hum it for you, but it's beautiful. And I believe that the musicians that I listed in there, you can actually see them on YouTube playing the piece. Oh, that's very cool. I can't wait for
0: your Spotify playlist. That sounds like a ton of fun. You'll have to send that to me. I will. Because that will be a good accompaniment for the book.
1: Absolutely. How do
0: you come up with the titles for your book? I love your titles because they're always sort of a clever, almost not really play on words, but almost a play on words. And how did you come up with Musical Chairs for the title to this well, one?
1: Musical Chairs, I really felt, it really felt like it fit the book well. I resisted that title for a while because I was worried that it would sound too childlike, too, and it's not a childlike, it's a fairly mature book in terms of the cast of characters and there aren't a lot of little children running around in this book so i resisted but i finally when i got about to the end of the book and i have a lot of characters as i said to you they have these this empty chair you know they have the bridget's playing she's the cellist will plays piano and then there's the violinist who keeps disappearing on them <laughs> and that sort of started to take over more of the book i started having more people getting either pushed off their chair or feeling worried that they're going to get pushed off their chair, losing a seat at the table, mm-hmm. if that's a better way to put it. And everyone ends up rearranging themselves. And my one of my main characters, the older gentleman at 90 who gives a toast at the end, he sort of describes that phenomenon of people who different things happen in your life and you have to kind of rearrange yourselves and find yourself in this new constellation of your friends and family members and everyone around you, there are a lot of people in the book who get physically moved from one place to another, kicked out of their normal spot and put, maybe with a little bit of discomfort, maybe it's an upgrade, whatever, into some new role that they haven't played before. So that seemed to fit so well. So so I stopped resisting and I thought, actually, it's kind of perfect, I think it's
0: absolutely perfect. And I don't, I guess maybe because I knew, you know, I'd seen it coming in the cover and I knew you weren't writing a children's book, but even though I understand musical chairs is the game for kids, I I mean, I think it's the perfect name for that and I don't think it's remotely childish. I feel like
1: you've been along for the ride of this book practically since the first- draft.
0: <laughs> I know which I just love because it's fun for me. We talked about it a lot when you came for your limelight launch yep. with Susie and so then to actually see it come to fruition. I don't know. I just it's nice to have been around long enough and to have been friends and to see all these things come about to then actually hold the book in my hand. I have to mm-hmm. say it just made me very happy.
1: And the cover does fit the title and the that cover That was my next was- question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As you know, me and the covers. So I would love to hear about the cover. I just think this cover is so perfect for the book. It just suits it so well. It tells you a little bit enough of the mayhem in the book that you can get a little bit of a feel for it. There's a comedic nature to it, mm-hmm. which I think is so perfect. I agree. Uh, I, the The illustrator is named Ella Latham and she's just wonderful. And I like the cover so much that I actually contacted her personally and hired her to do an illustration that you can see on my website. I had this idea, but I am not an illustrator. You can tell I have very few skills, actually. <laughs> not at I'm all. Not I'm not artistic. So <laughs> Nor I- am I. Because I, I had this nifty idea of a, an illustration that I wanted that would sort of capture all three of my books on the main page of my website. And she was lovely, and she did the most – She listened to me and was like, I totally get what you're saying and sent me back these pictures that were just absolutely perfect. Just oh, perfect. I'm going to
0: have to look because I haven't been on your website in a while. Now, is she the same one that did Limelight and small admissions
1: or is that somebody different? Not actually. Okay, She's not. She's new with small admissions and they just did, I think they did a great job. I love the fact that the cat tail wraps around the spine of the book. I love that there's not just a wine glass, but there's a spilled wine glass, which is just kind of perfect also. Yeah. I loved the
0: spilled wine glass too. I thought that was perfect. Yeah. So, well, you know how much I always enjoy talking with you and I'm sad that we're going to have to get to our last question already, but I would love to hear what you've recently read and would recommend to people.
1: Okay. This is always hard for me, although I found it a little tricky to focus during these last few months. Fortunately, it has not hurt my reading whatsoever. I've been reading like absolutely like crazy. Um, of course I love Susie Schnall's new book, We Came Here to Shine, adored it. I love Fiona Davis's new book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. I really loved Terry McMillan's book. It's not all down here, downhill from here. If you liked Waiting to Exhale, if you're a fan of Terry McMillan, you will love this one. Her main character is 68 years old. She's just having a birthday and tragedy strikes, but you know what Terry McMillan does so well is she's, this main character has her group of girlfriends and her family, and it's just how they get through all of that. And then finally, I'll just mention American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Loved this book. It's so fascinating because it's about six genres in one. It's kind of no matter what you're in the mood for, whether it's historical fiction or a, a book with a lot of romance in it or a book that's a mom story or if you're looking for a spy story, literally everything <laughs> is in Lauren Wilkinson's American Spy. I thoroughly enjoyed this one.
0: I recognize the cover as you're showing it to me, but I don't I don't think I know that much about it. So I'm gonna have to look at that. And I love Terry McMillan and that one's on my list and I need to get to it. And obviously I love Fiona's she's so book. She, her, she's great in that book. I mean, it's, for a book lover, that book is perfect. Set in the New York public library. And I didn't yes. ever knew that there was an apartment there at one point. And um, so, and obviously I love Susie's book. So well, good. with Jason
1: well, those... Brenner has a new book out. Summer she does. Yeah, yeah. I
0: reviewed it for Book Reporter. Yeah. So, and it was very entertaining, Provincetown and all of that. So yeah, well, good. Well, these are all great recommendations and just thank you so, so much for joining me. I loved musical chairs and I always love talking to you.
1: I love talking to you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for listening to the Thoughts From a Page podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and tell all your friends about the Thoughts From a Page podcast. I would really appreciate it. Amy's book, Musical Chairs, can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time. And the link is in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to KP Regan for the sound editing, and thank you so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.